0: Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. What does the quality of earnings process look like?
1: So typically in the in quality of earnings, the process itself is one of the diligence that's going to happen most likely in the, in the early stage of the full due diligence of the acquisition. And the goal is here is to be able to solidify the earning profile of the company. And we like to sequence it into a two-phase approach. So phase one is where we put some certainties around the revenue, the adjustments, and the adjusted EBITDA of the business. And it's more important in this just lower to lower middle market space because just the financial statements of the smaller companies are normally not audited. And it comes with a, you know, quite a bit of discretionary personal expenses and things of that, that nature that needs to be adjusted for. And so the idea with phase one is that we come to a, a good understanding about the earning profile of this business and all the necessary adjustments. And whether is the valuation that is set out on the, the letter of intent on the acquisition makes sense. Once you get to that, that point, that allows the, the conclusion of the phase one, allows the buyer to make some decisions whether this is still a viable deal. And once you get past that point, then we move to phase two. And phase two, we can think of it as largely a confirmatory diligence, where we do procedures to verify that the revenue is real. That we can substantiate that with cash, you know, uh, the bank deposits in the bank accounts do a payroll reconciliation that we can reconcile back to the, the payroll earnings report and, and agree back to the tax returns. The type of procedures that we think is is crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And at the conclusion of phase two, what we produce is a full quality of earnings report that details out our findings, our observations, a full package that can be distributed to the bank, to the investors to review.
0: Awesome. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, Please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies, for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies, with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast, and follow me on Twitter at A.E. Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. My guests on this episode are Lori Harrington and Bruce Vanderzide. Lori launched a search in October 2020 and recently acquired Bruce's company, Enteratech, at the end of 2021, which offers business intelligence software for the construction and real estate industries. This episode is a great discussion of how building a better relationship with a seller, negotiating upfront, bringing great advisors, and emphasizing strong and frequent communication can lead to a successful deal. Whether you're buying or selling a business, this conversation has a ton to offer. During the episode, we go over how their first meeting went, how they made their due diligence process easier on each other, the power of building a strong relationship, and their advice both for searchers and owners looking to sell their companies. Well, Thanks for doing the episode. It's the first time I've had a searcher and the seller that they acquired the business from on the podcast at the same time, so I'm excited to have uh, this as a new format. One thing I'd love to start by doing is just hearing from both of you on backgrounds, Lori from from your career, and then Bruce on the business you started. Lori, do you want to start and give us a background and kind of lead us up to the point where you met Bruce?
2: Yeah. So I'm a chemical engineer by background. I started out working for Chevron and worked for them for a really long time, around 10 years um, in a variety of roles from construction, project management, operations. And then I left to go to business school at hbs in 2018 and that's where i discovered search funds and i was really drawn to it because more control over your career i knew i didn't want to do a start from scratch because that's very difficult to do so one of the reasons i really really admire bruce when i graduated and i started on the search journey i i knew i wanted to go into an industry that i could leverage my skill sets i had acquired before business school i didn't want to throw away you know, 10 years of engineering and uh, construction work. So I really focused on industrials, construction services, infrastructure services. And that's how I kind of found Bruce through a proprietary outreach. And when I saw what the software did, I was just in love with it. I thought it was fabulous. It was something I wish I would have had when I was running construction projects. We did a lot of our financials in Excel and lot of our forecasting in Excel. And this took all of that friction away. And so our first meeting, I we just did like a product demo and I really hit it off and then went for a visit, I believe, right, Bruce?
3: Yeah, you came down here was it May of last year? Ish, I think June? It was
2: June. 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 June or July, yeah. Ah, time flies. <laughs> it does fly.
0: Bruce, do you want to share a little bit about your business that you started?
2: Sure.
3: Well, my background is I'm a chartered accountant from Canada and I articled at Price Waterhouse and immediately got into their computer consulting division, which got me really interested into, you know, computer systems and databases and helping clients succeed. And I ended up moving to Vancouver, BC, where I became a general manager of a development home builder company. And yeah, built construction stuff, managed the whole company. And then I actually found this accounting software that worked really well, and I kept getting used as a reference for them. And then what happened was, this super large company kept asking me questions. They just phoned me. They used me as a reference. How do you do this? How do you do that? Because I set it up myself because I was a consultant. So set up my own system. And then that giant company said, Would you come and help us? We'd pay you. And my <laughs> and I go, Really? There's an opportunity. So I talked to the guy who was selling it. And yeah, I decided to start a consulting company setting it up. And then I became a the business partner or VAR for British Columbia and got an opportunity through that same company that got me into it. It's a funny story. They're a company that's a, one of the world's largest real estate companies based out of London, England. And they had me doing a lot of work all over North America. And then they said, well, we use this development Proforma software and valuation software out of London. If you were to bring it over here, we'd buy a bunch of it. We love you. And I said, well, that's really an interesting opportunity. They introduced me to the owner of that company who wanted to expand to North America. So he made me an offer to join his company as a minority shareholder. And I thought, well, being a, in a it's what I wanted to do. I wanted to build software. So I joined that company and was very successful launching into North America and Australia. And then we got acquired by a company out of Houston. So that's how I ended up down here. And a couple of years after we got acquired, I determined I have a disease called founder's itch, which is a horrible disease. I no longer have it, <laughs> but it means... Um, you know, after two years of a phenomenal company, great job, I decided I really did like building software and turning wrenches and working with clients and designing software. So I started this company because I saw a need in the construction industry that none of the ERP construction cost systems had any good reporting. Every single client wanted better reporting, right? So I decided I could build a reporting system that would work with different different uh, databases and normalize data and then build out this reporting tool which got us into better reporting and then our clients pulled us into higher end functions they said well we can't forecast our jobs very well we need a better way of doing that so we built that and then they needed to do work in process management they couldn't do that so we built that i mean basically everything's client driven right they if you just listen to your customers they'll tell you what they want to do and then you you know you interview enough customers to get a market perspective and design to that and it just works but yeah, I took this company to a great plateau. We've got a phenomenal opportunity in front of us, but I realized that uh, I didn't know how to scale a company. Like we should be doubling in size like in a year and double that the next year if this opportunity pans out. And it, the opportunity needed more capital, right? A bunch of it. And I'm you know, not that young anymore. So if I wanted to invest that kind of capital and commit to that kind of hard work, it would be a, recommitting to a whole bunch more years because it's it's a big opportunity. And so when Lori's offer came along, it was good timing because I did wanna make sure that this thing succeeded and still be part of it and needed some help.
0: You mentioned a plateau of sorts. What has become more difficult as the company got larger?
3: Well, it's a plateau in technology of the customers. Sorry, maybe a plateau wasn't, we were still growing nicely. We hadn't stopped growing. But what's happening, there's a major shift in the technology where the plateau is companies are moving from on-premise accounting systems and construction management systems to cloud-based ones. So the plateau is companies are, st- are needing to migrate up to those cloud-based systems. And it's just going to be like, believe it or not, it's going to be like DOS to Windows, where a couple of years from now, nobody will be looking at an on-premise system and buying it. So the plateau is we have to invest and get ready to do this so we've been engaged by one of the major firms to build a data migration tool for they're they're migrating thousands of companies to this new cloud platform and we were lucky to get partnered with a great company out of florida who who knows how to get the data into this uh, into the new system so it's a terrific partnership so the plateau is we have to take this business to another level like a, a just much
2: investment in, in some of the growth that we, we have on the horizon it just takes horse in front of the cart, basically.
0: Bruce, you'd also mentioned that you had had offers to acquire the company beforehand, and you decided that like those didn't pr- really pan out the way that you thought they might. But may- what made Lori's offer more interesting to you?
3: Well, of course, you know, 2021 was a year of significant m&a activity right like there's several things driving that one just the economy and two the amount of money in private equity looking to get placed and looking for quality investments and three a threatened huge capital gains tax increase got a whole bunch of owners saying wow if my capital gains rate doubles i have to work a bunch more years to get to the same place right so all of that happened and then i, ha- I did have two very serious approaches one with a solid offer to that But I'll I'll call them contingent offers that they were serious, but they required something else to happen. They were um, wanting to basically secure our company so that when their events happened, they could come along and merge with us. And so they were real and solid. But then Lori came along with an uncontingent offer, a non-contingent offer. And I just thought it was a better alignment because my criteria for selling or, or allowing up more people in as investors and partners is that first it had to be good for our customers, period. That if it didn't make sense from the customer point of view, it wouldn't work, right? It wouldn't be sustainable and customers would drop off and find, try to find other solutions. So, you know, again, I always try to do things, customers are partners, not targets. And so whatever we do corporately from a corporate organizational point of view and investment had to make sense for customers. And then it had to make sense for our staff because, you know, again the offers I had were very strategic and would work. But when you merge in with another software company, you lose, you lose your roadmap, right? And your staff now get new bosses and new, new ways of doing things, and that can work. It worked in our last company. That I sold, but it's such a big change, right? So from a staff point of view, keeping the company as is and growing it means it's easier on the staff that they have more opportunity in our company than they did before because there's more capital coming in and we'll be a bigger company, which means they can expand in their current roles. So it's good for the staff. And then it had to work out for me that, uh, you know, letting go of your company, I, I want this to succeed and grow and continue. I didn't want it to be folded into something and get kind of lost, right? Like it's just kind of done and the technology gets folded in and then it's gone, right? There's no, you know, you didn't build anything. It just becomes a cog in a bigger wheel. So yeah. So it met all those criteria. And of course it had to be somebody, the toughest part is finding somebody to can take it over, right? Cause it is something that you build and you put a lot of hours and sweat into and and it's all fun along the way but it has to be somebody that can take over it with industry knowledge again that can happen when you get merged in with a strategic company but you know i really was impressed with lori and her eagerness and their experience all lined up right so that's what made sense to me
0: yeah and lori from your perspective i'd, I'd love to hear from bruce too but on that those first few interactions you mentioned a demo and then actually going on site. How did those go? What sorts of things happened? What made the company more and more interesting as you got to know it?
2: Well, a few things. So going on site was, it wasn't really on site because we're a fully remote company. So it was just going down to meet with Bruce and his wife and honestly look them in the eye and say, is this person honest? Are they ethical? Do they really genuinely care about their employees? Because I really cared about those things. Um, I didn't want to do an LOI with the company just because it was a good price, but I didn't trust the business owner and thought this was someone I could work with. And we just really hit it off. And so that was more of the going on, on site part of it was just for the personal standpoint. And then also to, we, we by that point we went on site, we, we had had several phone calls before that. So it was also to kind of hash out an LOI, like what should this look like? And so we got a conference room and we, we did that. We wanted to be as fair as possible. Obviously, by that point, I was very taken with, with Bruce and with the technology. Again, he spent 10 years. I started out with consulting with clients and really building out this pro- product, one that's very thoughtful and it looks very sim- simple to use, but it's it's very powerful and that's really hard to do. And it's one of the things where it was, I looked at other construction softwares and I felt like, ah, oh, if I had enough money, I could build the same software in a year. That's not the case with this. It would take years to to build it to the capacity that Bruce did, um, no matter how much money you you threw at it. So,
0: and Bruce, from your perspective, how were those? uh, How was meeting Lori and and chatting with her in person? How did how did that go, from your perspective?
3: Well, I think I'll just echo that. That again, it has to be somebody you can trust your customers and staff with, right? that and this is going to be successful you're turning eventually you're turning your customers and staff over to this person and that I was really impressed with Lori and that it wasn't about um, you know just all numbers it was about culture it was about taking care of the staff like a lot of our staff have been with some of them have been with me 15 years through multiple companies so you know you those people are family and and yeah you look after them and you support them when you know they're sick or st- how families are sick or something, you do, you do what's right. So that was important that she got that.
2: And I will say part of like, what I really liked about my interactions with Bruce uh, during those meetings when you're negotiating the LOI is we tried to get out everything we could think of in that LOI that could possibly be a deal breaker that we could figure out early on. So like working capital, um, earnouts, pricing, but there were some other terms like deferred revenue, right, Bruce was another one that we, we worked out we got our lawyers involved and we said to them, tell us everything that surprises sellers when they go to do the purchase agreement. We don't wanna have any surprises. So being very transparent and fair between each other was, was
3: nice. Having done this once before, I mean, the first time I did it, it was it was very amicable as well, very fair. And, and the person or and the companies that bought, when I was the minority shareholder, they were very easy to negotiate with, but it was a little, because I had never done it before and my business partner who was the majority order and owner in London was, was not financial. And I'm tend to be a financial person. So I, I helped with a lot of the financial side of it, but you know, you just know what's going to happen. So I, I would say that typically there is a, process that you go through and the LOI, you know, sets a purchase price and sets some big terms. But I didn't realize afterwards, a working capital negotiation had to happen separate from the LOI. And it wasn't that the first company did anything wrong. That's the normal process, right? So understanding the whole process means I understood all the points that we're going to get negotiated. I've only done it once. So it's not like I'm an expert, but you know, you, you know the process once and now Lori and I talked about all that up front. So there wouldn't be like multiple major negotiations. So that made it a lot easier to do the purchase agreement because we'd already been through all the clauses that can cause angst.
0: (laughs) Yeah, certainly. What other types of things did you hear from searchers or business owners who had been through transactions that had caused conflicts at certain points in the process that you wanted to do differently? So getting terms out at the start of the process, makes a lot of sense and sounds like it worked really well. What other types of things did you do to smooth the process as much as you could?
2: Well, I think a really big help as reflecting on this was the fact that Bruce's wife, Doreen does their, their, all their books and they are just super, super clean. And so there wasn't any like, we we had we knew what the business looked like when we were doing the LOI so i would assume if your books weren't clean then maybe that would cause some conflict later on um so that was really helpful and i think bruce getting his lawyer involved you know and, and making sure he had representation and that he understood the terms and that was in the LOI versus potentially feeling tricked later on if you didn't have that legal representation and didn't fully understand the terms What are your thoughts, Bruce?
3: Oh, I I think that's huge because, you know, Laurie was, well, uh, I was referred interest. I stayed friends with the with the person who bought my first company, right? He just stayed friends. I left on good terms. I left to go start my own company again. He totally got it. It's no problem with that. He supported me many ways after that. And when uh, Laurie came along, I got a, a referral to a good software company law firm for, with or a law firm that has people who specialize in software acquisitions and sales and so getting somebody involved early that's really good at it saves you tons of problems down the road and that you know you again you're talking about everything up front it's very easy and then we had a great meeting the first meeting we had with Lori's counsel and the funds council man they got the two councils got along famously that they were all talking about the issues and and just stand back and let them work stuff out right like there's you know that when the loi came through our lawyer expressed as as they always do they're doing their job that you know maybe this could be worded this way and this clause could be worded that way and both lawyers just had a there was no controversy at all this yeah that makes sense let's do it that way that having really good lawyers is important and when laurie said that some searchers don't even bring don't even bring a lawyer in for the LOI I'm thinking well they can't be serious then because let's just say it that maybe it's 10 hours of a lawyer's time to help you with an LOI if you can't spend that how serious can you be because you're basically pushing all kinds of problems down the road right if that LO if you sign an LOI without legal advice and then a good lawyer comes along after it, they're going to open it all up again right there if you if you made some mistakes so just bringing in good legal counsel at the front is I can't see doing it any other way
2: and you were referencing sellers, right, Bruce, there?
3: In both cases, we had very reasonable counsel. It happened the last time I sold my company too. The lawyers were very good to work with. They weren't adversarial. And I think that you may find that sometimes lawyers do feel their role is to protect every interest of their customer and prevent the agreement from happening because they have to win every point, right? And and really it is a it's a buyer and a seller working together to make this happen. In the, in the in each of their best interests, but of course you have to give some things here and take some things there. And it's just a matter of, you know, not having super hard lines anywhere, but making it all work.
2: And, and I will say also help Bruce and I probably chat on the phone almost every day during the diligence process uh, from like August to December. Uh, and so we formed a really great relationship. We were very honest with each other about where we were at, what was going on with the business, and then what I was finding in diligence and, and sharing that information as it happened. And so real bond of trust there through the process.
0: Yeah. It sounds like communication was a big one where you both had lots of communication up front and then ongoing constant communication on how the process was going and anything you were finding. That's, that's pretty impressive to be able to chat every day about the process as it goes through.
3: Yes. And the, you know, that the, the due diligence process, as we said right at the start was kind of exhausting (laughs) it's and it was it is every time because you know got to respect the fact that the acquisition the the firm buying is making a significant investment and they got to know what they're getting i totally get that right but i think maybe one thing laurie that came out was the dude i call rolling due diligence where you might have been getting requests from different investors so just when you think you're done oops here's a bunch more (laughs) it's (laughs) so you're never quite at the finish line
0: (laughs) Bruce, in our conversation, we talked about how you're still having to run the company during this whole time period, uh, ongoing through due diligence and these new requests for extra information. How did you balance managing the company while also running due diligence?
3: You can't balance it. (laughs) You just can't. You got to just work more. There's no short shortcuts there. You just have extra hours. You have to do both, and and that's where the fatigue comes in. And and Lori understood that. You know, you want to get it done as fast as possible. In fact, the first due deli- diligence. The nice thing again, I uh, well, I. I I married well above my station and my wife is also a chartered accountant who is really talented and good and keeps everything in good order. So when we got that first due diligence request, I just pounded through a weekend and got like 75% of it done in like three days because everything's just ready. It's just there. So that made it a lot easier. It's then they, you know, a lot of the stuff that we, you know, could have done better, like you keep track of every client NDA, you know, we made sure we had to go back and find a bunch and, you know, stuff that you signed that all your agreements and stuff was a little more time consuming because I, you know, over 10 years, you it's a lot of things to go back and find. And you want to do full disclosure. You don't, you know, one thing I was very, keen on doing was making sure Lori knew what she was getting into because she made such a big life decision, right? For her to commit to this is a huge decision personally for her. So I made, I I don't want to use the word over-disclose, but I made sure I told her everything to every degree possible so that there's no surprises that she doesn't get disappointed you know every company has its problems and i was sure to tell her that you know here's where we struggle here's where we don't do well here's here's what's wrong because you try to work on those things but you know every company has that so she she needed to know that so she made a fully informed decision because it was so important to her life that i i couldn't have lived with myself if i didn't tell her something oh she'll figure that out later i just didn't have that attitude
2: which i was very appreciative of I can tell you now actually being in, in Antara that he did fully disclose everything and I knew I was walking into and it's been really fun last oh, like 50 days since I joined. So.
3: Well, I think that saves a lot of time too. So not, and again, we don't have any giant problems. All our problems are growth oriented. We've been actually growing really well. So they're the best business problems to have. We have, we have more work than, you know, we can handle. So we have to staff up. So that's, that's the kind of problem you want to have. They're not, you know we have good we have really good employees really good customers like really uh, the, working with the customers is so much fun they teach us stuff right they they push our product they teach us and they're appreciative of what we do and it's so rewarding when a customer says you know we run our business on your software it's it's just so rewarding knowing you can really help people so yeah, it all works
0: yeah, that's a that's pretty, that is pretty amazing. You mentioned it was a big life decision for Lori, which is, of course, true, but it's also a big one for you as well in selling your business. When you, when you started contemplating what your life would be after selling the business and you started thinking about what does selling really mean, what sorts of answers started coming up for you?
3: Well, it's... It's tough in a number of ways that, you know, having done it again once before, you have to real, you know, you, you need to let go. It's hard to let go. So I got to make sure that, you know, I help Lori into transition into the role and not get in her way. So I've tried to really do that, but also support her and, and help her understand some of the reason why things are the way they are there is some thought put into things so um, you can't know it all it does take some experience and kind of what they call institutional knowledge right like why is it this way and not that way and so you may look at something and say oh we'll just change that but that might be that way for a good reason so helping her understand that without um, interfering is important so letting go is hard because you want you, you know you're wired to the you know I think Laurie sent me an article about the search uh, process from Harvard Business Review. And it was right on that you become the business. Like you wake up thinking about it, you go to bed thinking about it. And when you're walking your dog, you're thinking about, you get an idea how to do something differently, right? You just be, it's so intertwined with your life that it's, it's really is your life that uh, you're always thinking about it, working on it and it never lets go. So yeah, letting go of that is going to be hard because it's not just the work side, it's the enjoyment side, right? So, you know, I I do have to think about it, about how to transition gradually and and successfully, you know, supporting the company and helping continue its successful growth. And, and then, you know, I'm fortunate in that I do have a bunch of, a bunch of hobbies, and I've been doing volunteer work and stuff. So, you know, the transition to retirement, eventually, I think I'll handle well, because I can, I won't have a problem staying busy because I, I think you're saying you ride motorcycles, you know, ride motorcycles, work on old cars, have a bunch of friends that do all that. So it's, and then volunteer work is good. So yeah, I think I'll be all right. I have no desire to start another company. That's for sure. I don't have another one in me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Lori, how did you think about making the opposite transition so going from searching without a business to now not searching with the business what's that like
2: um it's it's definitely better for sure i mean i tell people if you love searching then you should have gone and worked in private equity because that's what private equity is if you don't like the search process that much then you're probably a good fit for, for for the operating role so it's been a great transition i was very concerned i will say about the fact that it's a fully remote company and so. What would that look like on day one coming in? How do you introduce yourself to the company? Would I be twiddling my thumbs day one, trying to figure out how to shout out Bruce? But it was actually really easy, uh, which was a surprise was a, was a great surprise, and it's been good. Really leveraging the board too on the first hundred days. So since we are a pretty small company, team member wise, you know, leveraging them as like a leadership team to really set to get feedback and help with some strategic initiatives have been really helpful. So I didn't realize how helpful a board could be in these first 100 days until going through this process.
0: With your board, what kinds of questions or points of guidance would you ask from them?
2: One big one was we have two board members that have a lot of experience in either the construction ERP space or in the business intelligence space. And so working with them to think through sales channel management strategies and have them be able to go off on their own and, and create some documentation for us to, to look at we have an operating partner for one of my um, our our lead investors and he spent a week with me up in salt lake going through different exercises to think about how to set strategic goals and me to the book traction which i feel like has changed my life really highly recommend everyone who is searching or has a business read that book
0: are you implementing traction now
2: We have been. We've been doing a weekly rock reviews, quarterly goals. We're still in the early, early stages, but it's, uh, yeah, we're trying to implement it. And Bruce has definitely been a big help with that and on board. So,
0: Yeah. So with a remote company, when you can't really easily be in the same place, how did you go back and forth over those first, even like the first 30 days of You know, you you got a lot of the questions answered about the company before buying it. But of course, there's still little things here and there that you still need to get from Bruce. How do you have that communication after closing and you're now running the company?
2: Bruce and I, we we, we meet all the time. So we do a daily like five o'clock meeting catch up. We ping each other. We use teams pretty regularly. And we've been thinking about how to divide different roles over time. We do need to do another in-person meeting soon. We were just talking about that before this meeting, so just to kind of workshop some things. But
3: well, I'd also say that you know we're we're lucky to have we've attracted really good people over the years, and they're mature and they're calm, and you know they we've worked we, we actually transitioned to a remote company almost accidentally. That was just, this was done in about. You know, 2015, 2016, I was living in Houston and we had two or three employees in Houston and we'd all go into the office every day. And then we started realizing, well, we don't need to all be here every day. Most of us are doing online meetings with customers or developers or, you know, we have an offshore team. And so why do we come to the office just to sit in our office with the door closed and drive 30 minutes each way? That's just crazy. So people just started working at home and So we get, you know, they start working a couple of days at home, then they they come into the office one day a week, then one day every two weeks. You just start working effectively remotely a long time ago. And having mature staff that you can trust and get stuff done on their own is important. One interesting thing that one client said to me that's absolutely true is that, you know, the transition to remote works if you have employees that can work on their own and that the employees who struggle working remotely are the same ones that struggle at work. In, in the office, that right? So if you can work at, if you can work effectively, it doesn't matter where you are. So we made that transition a long time ago, and having good staff helps that.
2: Another yeah. thing I did focus on in the first thirty days from a relationship building standpoint was really building relationships with the CTO. We had met during diligence. He was one of the few employees who knew about us going through diligence. and so I met with him in person right before the transaction closed. And then again, I met with him the other week, I went down to Houston where he's at. And so we formed a really tight relationship and that's been a lot of after hours, like phone calls, just talking and talking about the future of the company and getting aligned and um, that's been really beneficial.
3: Yeah, and that's one of the keys to success is I'm, I'm more of the business side and product management, understanding the use cases and how people do things. And then he trend, you know, he and I meet to go over features and he turns that into developer specification, right? And he improves what I, he improves the spec that I write out. So it's, uh, it's teamwork. Technology and business have to go together because you couldn't do it with just the technology side because you have, again, that whole process of making software look simple and, and does, it's complex behind the, the calculations are very complicated, but it has to be easy to interact with. So, you know, the old persona thing, I'm saying our software should work well for the mid fifties project manager and a construction company who needs to do forecasting, including S curve forecasting. You know, a lot of project managers aren't very good on computers. Their background is actually coming from trades in a lot of cases. So they work up from a trade to a site super site foreman to site super to project manager, right? They don't, being good on computers isn't one of the skills that's required. So we have to make it work for them. And that keeping that in mind all the time really helps. So our CTO is very good at, at making sure the interface is nice and clean. And we've got a great development team. One of our offshore developers really helps too. About He's always making suggestions on making it easier for users. So if everybody has that user-driven focus, you can end up with good technology.
0: What kinds of Compounding benefits have you seen from running a remote company for six or seven years now?
3: It does help with scalability that if you can hire people from different states, right? You don't all have to come into the same office. So your your talent pool isn't within, you know, 40 minutes of your office. That's the biggest benefit. So that helps a lot.
2: I think also of being able to give employees flexibility, you know, to go pick up their kids from school or um, you know, work, visit someone, and, and work from home somewhere else. And I think it attracts better talent when you're able to have that flexibility as well.
3: Yeah, I always tell staff, if you know, you should never miss your kid's Christmas concert at school. If you do, you're not a good time manager. You you know about it months ahead. Put it in your calendar. Work will flow over it. Go. Like just yeah, you shouldn't you shouldn't miss those things.
0: Bruce, we'd also talked about how letting go of control is can be hard in some areas and maybe not in some other areas, but I'd be curious as this process has gone on and you're, you're still going to be around in the company, of course, but there's definitely pieces of the company that you're letting go of control of. How has that felt from your perspective? Have Is that something that you've been excited for? Is there some trepidation that you had to think through a little bit more? Or How has that process been from your side?
3: Well, it's been actually pretty good because part of it is, Again, revamping some of our internal processes where we, you know, could could just do better. That we have, you know, some of our challenges are with growth and scaling, and some of those relate to, you know, defining client work very well the first time, right? So we don't go back and forth, you know, fixing things. We do a lot of really good custom reporting. So. Letting go of that and, and watching it evo- watching the process evolve and contributing to the processes has been good. I think one of the things you know I've been actually doing some research on selling, comp- you know, retiring successful retirements, and one of the things is you do feel that when, after this that you have accomplished something, and that knowing that you're passing it to a lorry and a board that are going to look after it means you can kind of close the door behind you. You know, you know, it's going to be in good shape. So there's still the big opportunity we're working on that I'll be continued to be involved in. But I think the, yeah, that transition, knowing it's going to be looked after is easier.
2: And I will say what made it really great for me, at least for the first 30 days, Alex, is when I came in, instead of Bruce, I really wanted to learn how we do things and and write out the processes and take time to try and make some things that were kind of box more efficient. And so he continued to do a lot of the day to day stuff. So I could take the time to do that. And so that was super helpful to help me get to speed and learn also to kind of because he wears a lot of hats. There's no way I can step into Bruce's shoes, we're gonna have to make some hires to step into some things that Bruce does. But he wears a lot of hats.
3: Yeah, and I think that that was a good move to have Lori learn the business by documenting what we do, right? Documenting all the processes, which will help us scale, but also she she sees how the wrenches are turned, right? Like what, what you do to deliver a new implementation or custom reporting, or as we're just doing another systems integration now. Actually, my daughter, my daughter got hired by a really good company. She graduated out of UT and then her company actually started her rotating her, through the administration side of all the departments in their business. And I thought that was just freaking brilliant. I have learned more from, you know, talking to people who do, I'll call it, you know, accounting functions and clerical functions. They know how the company runs, right? They'll tell you how to make things better. And they know, they know way more than they're given credit for. So, you know, I think putting my daughter through that, that company really taught her how the business works. And then she got promoted up, right? But so Lori doing kind of the same thing, seeing how all the, seeing how all the admin works and how the development process works herself is necessary for her to manage the company. She has to know how, the, how things work.
0: Yeah. What were some effective ways of discovering these processes? Cause I imagine a lot of them are documented in some way, or at least there's some digital evidence that they exist. But when you're trying to piece together these different processes, what's that like?
2: So, was a lot of interviews with folks and having them walk me through certain workflows. But, you know, in a small company, a lot of things are, are verbal and people end up doing things different ways and maybe not the same way each time. And so it was documenting and understanding the gaps. And then we just actually rolled out a new uh, or I would say an improved process for our management of our development and, and customer workflows and tickets just to make sure that everyone was on the same page as we scale. So it was understanding how people did their work and then writing it down and seeing where the gaps were and where people thought we could improve. So
0: if you think about your time searching and now closing a business, what advice would you offer searchers who are trying to accomplish the same thing?
2: My first advice is I really believe in paying interns. I think everyone should pay interns. And I think that's your biggest bottleneck if you're doing a proprietary outreach is use them to, to help you outreach and then focus on industries that you either can really speak to. So either learn the language or it's, it's, it resonates with the background, I think is helpful. And then I think, you know, there's something you said about using brokers. I didn't really use brokers because I was told that, oh, don't use, that's not a great channel. And I started that up uh, like maybe a month before I talked to Bruce and I started getting a lot of like good deal flow coming through there. I didn't act on it because I just didn't feel like it was fair to keep outreaching proprietary or looking at SEMS when we were under an LOI. That, that was fair to to Bruce. So kind of stopped the outreach there. And then the other thing is be fair to the seller. Like, you know, treat them like a partner, be upfront. And if you find you don't trust the seller, I would run away. I don't know. That's just me.
0: Bruce, on the seller side, what's your advice?
3: Well, I think it's important to, again, get good legal counsel. So that makes the, because it is a negotiation. You still have to have, it has to go smoothly. And so, yeah, try to find the way that, you know, how do you, when you come across something that you have to work through, it's how do we make this work? It's a, as opposed to, I'm taking this position, comma, damn it. <laughs> I mean, there's, when you start, when you start drawing lines in the sand, then the negotiation turns from a, how do we make this all work to, well, I gave up this point, you got to give up this one. And then that kind of becomes controversial. And now you start scorekeeping on what you've given up and what you're, you know, you don't need to do that. You can just work through each point and say how to, what's fair, like Laurie just said. And yeah, so getting good legal advice up front and then fully disclose stuff. Cause I can't imagine selling your company and then the buyer finds out, the buyer has buyer's remorse right imagine that that you buy a company and now you think oh my god i didn't know this i wouldn't have done it if i had known this you can't i couldn't live with myself first if that happened and secondly it can't be successful and sustaining if that happens so yeah you got to you know fully disclose everything and i guess from a seller's advice i could have been a bit better prepared i wasn't because <laughs> i hadn't you're fine oh, oh i wasn't looking to sell right this kind of it kind of came out of the blue. So, you know, again, 2021, I did have a couple of serious approaches so that got me thinking about the value and that made it easier to talk to Lori because I had already basically talked value with two other serious companies and respected companies I respect a lot. And so that gave me the range of value. So yeah, that helped a lot too because that's probably hard to know until you go through a process, right? Now, again, there's, there's a whole... Seller side of you don't know how much your company is worth to someone else, you know. And, the, and I guess the other thing as a seller is you've always got this FOMO, right? Your fear of, oh, if I, if I just wait one more year, I'll have all this more revenue and it'll be worth more, more. Yeah, it's, you got to figure out that when's the timing right. But this, this, again, for the fact that we're ready to scale and, and go to a much bigger level, and needed an investment. And again, I've, I've been so happy with the way this is going because, wow, yeah, the board has been really helpful because I, you know, I, I certainly am just one person and can't have all that experience, right? So, yeah, no, this has all been good. But the advice would be get good legal counsel, fully disclose everything, be prepared to work many more hours than you're used to because you do have to run the business while you're doing this. There's no shortcut. It's just you have to do it. And then, yeah, you've just got to keep pushing. So it's really, the whole process is a marathon, not a sprint, right? So you've got to think, keep thinking that way. Now, a couple of times, I probably pushed Lori and her lawyer a couple of times because things were just not moving. And if you don't keep pushing, it isn't going to close. We wanted to close by the year end. And we thought we were going to close by November 30th. We didn't quite get there, but we we both, Laurie and I, pushed hard to make sure that everything was in, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to close at a year end for accounting and tax. So we did that. But we were had everything lined up by like the 15th of December to so that, you know, we were ready to close on the 31st. So yeah, you just got to keep pushing it because sometimes it can stall and be hung up by you know, lawyers last year were very busy too with all that M and A activity. So you just got to keep pushing them a bit to get done.
2: Yeah, and I think I think part of the thing with the diligence process as a searcher is you have this pool of funds, right? You're trying to buy one company, and so you also want to kind of stretch out the diligence process where you do QOV before you start deep, deep diving into technical diligence versus legals. And so having that time to really understand the business was good. I've, I don't know how Bruce feels about it, but not being rushed to try and close in 30 to 60 days before really understanding and, and taking time to get to know Bruce was super beneficial, but it was, you know, towards the end when the lawyers getting busy, it was, you know, a big push to make sure that we were, everything was buttoned up because you, as a searcher, you also have like preemptive price notices to your investors that is, you know, it's a two week like waiting period, right? So diligence is done, but you're just waiting on a response for equity.
0: Moving into closing questions, Laurie, we'll start with you. What college class would you teach if it could be about any, any subject you wanted?
2: Any subject I wanted. I I think I would teach a search class, honestly. Like that was my favorite class at HBS. And I I think really trying to empower like more women to go into search, because I think if you hadn't had like a stay in like private equity before, like I did do a short internship of private equity. And so I kind of learned this language of finance. And it was very intimidating before I got into it. And I was like, oh, this is, this is all this is. It's, it's just this, like, networking and finding a good business. And there's not as much hard financial stuff uh, going on there. And so that really empowered me to do search. And so being able to kind of demystify that for for women would be great.
0: That'd be fun. Bruce, What's what's your class?
2: I think it would be going through the selling of a company
3: process that, you know, when I sold my last company again, I worked with the VC partners and they kept telling me how founders leave all the time. And they actually leave. They told me that the founders often leave within six months, like leave period. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is they may have the finances. Now there's attitude changes towards work, but a lot of it is they get frustrated. And I think you can alleviate that frustration if you go in with the right attitude to the sale and help the company succeed because it's, you know, like your kids succeeding, right? You want your kids to be more successful than you are. And that's what this is kind of, but there's a lot of things about letting go and how to let go and how to, you know, stand back sometimes and let the train run, let the, on the tracks, you know, you don't have to be the engineer all the time and, and figuring out, you know, the emotional side of it about when to sell and and going through the valuation process. Cause you know, having some objective data to value your company as opposed to saying, oh, I thought it was worth more. And, you know, why? And, you know, you have to go through and document what your company's really worth. So I, I'd like to teach a class on the um, on how to sell a business successfully because I, I think it's not done often is what I understand. I could see why.
0: Yeah, that'd be a great class. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? And Bruce, maybe we'll stick with you for this one and then go to Lori.
3: Sure. Well, I mentioned it earlier is that I used to have an attitude that, you know, you talk to lower level, quote, lower level employees in an organization and they're just, you know, punching the clock and doing their job. What you don't realize is they know more about the business than anyone else. That was a, I let that go quickly. As soon as I started more, inter, more interaction with, uh, with different levels of staff in a company, that how much they know and how good they are at their job is underappreciated. And yeah, I learned I learned more about, I learned more about how to design software from them, from those, those working with client staff at different levels than anyone else. That was a belief I had that I was happy to let go.
0: Lori, what's a belief you let go?
2: It might be kind of similar to Bruce's. You know, when I was starting out my career at Chevron, I was you know managing projects, and at the time, I didn't think I really needed to deep dive into the details of what like the engineering firms were doing or the construction, but engineering firms were doing, and really understanding those details to be a good project manager. And I did a role offshore for two years where it was very much like starting a platform, things are going wrong, basically became a real engineer for the first time. And that actually translated really well into being a better you know, manager and high level thinker because you understand how the pieces fit together. And so I think when people say you don't need to get into the weeds on things, I think you do initially need to get in the weeds of things and really understand how things fit together. And then you can go high level, right? You don't need to stay in the weeds Forever, but I think it's really important to understand what the weeds are uh, to make good decisions.
0: That's a great one. I like that one a lot, Lori. What's the best business you've ever seen, besides Bruce's?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, so (laughs) So funny
2: enough, when I was working in oil and gas, there was this company called PEC Safety, and what they did is every so all the vendors that we used had to pay them to be in the system for like their safety record. And it was just so brilliant because if it, it was a downturn, people were still paying them because it didn't matter what oil price was because you had to be in there to get more work. And so it just had a, and they had a quarter on the market and it turned out that a searcher actually from HBS bought that company like five years ago or six years ago. And I was like, wow, that was such a great find and what a sticky business. So that's probably one of the best ones I've seen.
0: That's awesome. Bruce, what about you?
3: I'm going to go to Texas since I moved down here from Canada. The first time I went into a Bucky's, oh my goodness, what is this? It's a gas station that also sells all kinds of clothes and hats and candy and good food and, wow, clean restrooms, I'm saying. You go into a, I don't know, if people come to Texas, just try a Bucky's. ees They've got this branded logo shirts and hats and everything. But you know what? They've turned a gas station into a, into a well-run enterprise and the employees are real friendly and nice and seem to be having fun they post their wages they're paying like double what normal retail pays and you can send your kids in with five bucks each and they'll have a blast i mean everybody people shoppers are having fun so i just think they really captured uh a way and and bottled a a way to turn a gas station into a destination i'm so impressed
0: yeah i've not been to a bucky's before but there's another Bucky's unrelated chain of gas stations, also called called Bucky's here in Omaha. But they're not the same scale. But the even just looking at Google Maps on some of these Bucky's locations, they're gigantic. They're massive. Like the, they're massive.
3: Like fifty thousand yeah. square feet for a gas station store. It's crazy. <laughs> Our kids could, when they were little, they could spend you know half an hour in there running around. It was and having a good time. It's good.
2: And people plan their trips around it. You'll see a sign for Bucky's. that says "100 miles next Bucky's," and people are like, "Okay, can we make sure we can fill up there? And plan our trip around it."
0: Wait, did they buy billboards along the highway yes. saying, the, yeah. exactly, 100 miles will be here." Oh, that's smart. Yeah.
3: Exactly. No,
0: that's smart. Well-run like that.
3: company. Yeah.
0: That's one of those businesses that I think is so interesting where they take kind of a mundane task or location, like a convenience store or gas station, and they make it into something that's, that people are excited to go to. And that, that's just so much fun and so, much interest, so interesting to study those kinds of companies.
2: Yeah, especially since you see people wearing shirts and like pajama pants that are Bucky's branded. Like that's phenomenal.
3: It is. Yep.
0: That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much both for coming on the podcast and chatting a little bit about buying and selling this company and the process and all the different things you guys have gone through for to get to where you are today. So thank you very much for taking part in this new format for the episode. So thank you so much.
2: All right, well,
3: hope it helps some people. Have a good.
2: Thanks Alex.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Up Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.